0: Well, I want to to begin by telling a short story about a man I never met who was born in the early 20th century who happens to be nicknamed Shorty. Actually, his nickname, to his family members at least, was Big Shorty. Shorty had an older brother who was tall like his mother. His younger brother was actually the shortest of the three brothers and he was Shorty and very uncreatively, I guess, they nicknamed this guy Big Shorty. For the purpose of clarity, from the rest of the short story, we're going to name him Shorty, okay? So Shorty came from a family of Irish immigrants who settled in Kentucky, like I said, in the early 20th century. Shorty had red hair, a fiery attitude, and you guessed it, he was short. In grade school, Shorty began coming home one year with bruises and the occasional bloody nose. Three boys from school had been picking on him on a regular basis. One day, his father sat shorty down and said, son, actually, he probably said lad or laddie. Something something to this effect. Laddie, no one is going to stick up for you if you don't stick up for yourself. And then he said, you might be short, but no one in this family ever gives up. Now, you whoop those boys. No one knows exactly what Shorty's dad said, because this story has been embellished over the years. But what everyone knows who knew Shorty and who knew these three boys is that one day after school, Shorty climbed a tree uh, ...that overhung a dirt path that these boys regularly took to get home. And he timed his jump so that just before they pass underneath him... ...he's free-falling and softens his blow on top of their heads. And I imagine that he is like a honey badger... ...with fists flying like Bruce Lee... ...knocking them around, blooding them up. And the image I have in my mind is... uh, uh, ...when Ralphie is beating up Scott Vargas, right... uh, ...in the Christmas story... ...and then he knocks the toady to the side too... Uh, It's an insane scene, and these boys never messed with Shorty again. Now, I say I never met Shorty. That's not quite true. I did meet Shorty when I was seven months old. I met him for the first time when he was on a hospital bed, and that was the last time I ever met him before he died. You see, Shorty is my great-grandfather, and I learned this story from my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my mother, This story is one of many family stories that I hear on the rare occasions when I visit Kentucky to visit my mother's people. It's told oftentimes with a smile or a smirk. It's told in a context of a funny story. Oh, your great-grandpa Shorty, he was a character. But it's also, I think there's a bit of comedy mixed in there because my family doesn't want to be a family that embraces violence. But there's another reason that this story, of all the stories that could be told, seems to have survived. It's an ethos in that part of my family that says Shorty and his people don't give up. That says when times are tough, when resources are low, this family never gives up. Never loses hope. I've been thinking about this phenomenon lately, about how I—I I didn't know any of my great grandparents super well, and yet there's certain stories that surface about my great grandparents. It's almost as if uh, you were to take. A really good sporting event or a great movie and distill it in about 10 minutes worth of highlights. Why were these stories passed down from my family? Usually they're stories of how someone overcame adversity, they're stories of immigration, or stories of great generosity. Your family probably has stories. Ancestors, family members, in many ways, these are the stories that shape us. Think about it. When you're very young, you're not telling many stories. In fact, you can't even talk yet for the first couple of years. It is the stories of our families that begin to shape who we are, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our people, how we think about the people in the world around us. Families have stories Sometimes these narratives are horror stories. We may work for years with a therapist once we hit adulthood to undo some of the stories that have been told to us, to rewrite some of the tapes of shame and destruction that go around in our head over and over again. But whether the stories are good or rather they're, they're horrible, the fact is that our stories shape us. Individual stories shape us, family stories shape us, and of course national stories. At the national level, uh, stories shape us. Every, every nation is stereotyped for something. And stereotypes are usually false on the one hand, but they're there for a reason as well. So uh, the Swiss, what are they known for? Uh, well, not just chocolate and stuff, and, but, but they're always like exact and on time. And I tell you what, when we crossed over from Switzerland to Italy, there's an exact, like it's such a, it's like you're in a different world. The Swiss, all the trains are on time, all the streets are clean, nobody smiles and then you get to Italy and everyone's happy and embracing you and nothing's on time and nothing works right but it's you know it's just some of these stereotypes and in the United States for all of our negative baggage that we have there's still this this thing that when I say American spirit we kind of know what I'm talking about It's the sense that Americans have this ingenuity or entrepreneurial spirit Uh, many of the firsts in in the world uh, are done by uh, Americans nations have stories from uh, and those stories inform how we see ourselves and how we see the rest of the world story of course is also central in religious movements and maybe none so important as judeo-christian the judeo-christian religious movement because since we are people of the book or people of the story when you read the gospel about Jesus the Christ, or you you read any of the New Testament letters, you can't help but notice there's an assumption by the author that whoever's reading these things knows the stories that came before us, the illustrations they use, the way Jesus did ministry physically. It's all rooted in the context of the people of God, the people whose stories are written down in the Hebrew scriptures, what we often call the Old Testament. But I want to say something very important before we move on, The Hebrew Scriptures are more than just a backdrop for all the cool stuff that Jesus did. They're more than just the setting for Paul's letters. The Hebrew Scriptures are part of the story of God. The God who was yesterday and did all of those things is the same God of today, is the same God who will be in the days to come. That's why as a church, at Treats Covenant Church, we've been committed since our inception to preach out of the Hebrew Scriptures for a portion of every year. And that portion is usually mid-September to the beginning of Advent, which is the end of November. For the past four years during this section of the year, we've been rooted in the book of Genesis. Literally, Genesis is the book of beginnings. And before we dive into the book of Exodus today, I just want to begin with a little recap of what has gone before us. So I'm going to need your help with this. You can just yell out the answers as they come to you. Genesis begins with the words, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, in the beginning, God created all living things. Earth, sky, sea, plants, animals, mountains, valleys. And the crown of his creation was human beings. He created men And women in his image and he created us to flourish to multiply to be fruitful to have a good rule over the earth not an exploitive rule and to care for the garden that he put us in and planted and God walked with the first humans Adam which means earth man and Eve which means life or mother of life Adam and Eve enjoyed good work an intimacy with God, and unbroken intimacy with one another, and the creation, until what happened? Yes, there's some mumbling. I'm, not, I'm sure you said something like, until they were tempted by Satan and, <laughs> and sinned against God, right? They were tempted to doubt that God had their best interest in mind, and they disobeyed him by partaking of the one fruit they were told they couldn't have. From then on, humans, and you and I would know this to be true, we struggle with really trusting 100% that God has our best in mind, and we try and make up for it um, by being bosses of our own little universe. Well, Adam and Eve had two sons named Cain and Abel, and Cain, of course, killed Abel out of jealousy, and his line, his descendants became more and more evil, more and more independent from God. But Adam and Eve had another boy, and his name was Seth. Seth, which means foundation, who then had a son named Enosh, which means weakness. And it's from this line, this this dependent on God line, that after generation and generation and generation came the man we know as Noah. Noah lived in a time that the scriptures describe that everyone did evil all the time. And so God chose Noah, who is a righteous man, and his family to build an ark in order to preserve them. He said, "No, I want you to take your family and two of every kind of animal. I want you to build this ark. I'm starting again. And so waters begin to rise and fall. And waters representing chaos, the state of the earth before the first creation took over, destroyed the evil remnants that was left. And God began again with a new creation. The problem is that sin did not die. It was part of Noah. It was part of his offspring. And humans rebelled and struggled with God and with each other. So God decided to choose another man and his family. In Genesis chapter 12, that man we learn is Abram, who would become known as Abraham. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham that he will bless Abraham and his family in order for Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to the world, he said, Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants that will outnumber the sand on the seashore and the stars of the sky. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And, and, And through your descendants, Abraham, the world will come to know how much I love them, and they will come to be part of what you're doing and who you are, and they'll become my people. And Abraham had a boy named... Isaac, who had a son named, who had 12 sons named, just kidding, who had 12 sons, (laughs) the favorite of whom who had the fancy coat was, yes, and Joseph was kind of arrogant as a young man, and his brothers hated him, but they really hated him, and they sold him to some slave traders who took him out of the land of Canaan down to a country in the south called Egypt. And just when it seemed that God had abandoned Joseph, he gave him the ability to rise to the position of second in command of Egypt. God enabled Joseph to lead with wisdom, and such wisdom that he was able to help Egypt survive a seven-year famine, and not only survive, but thrive to the point where Egypt could become a lifeline to other people and other nations. And it was during this famine that Joseph Joseph was reunited with his brothers and with his father. And it was in Egypt where the people of God were reconciled and where they began to be abundant. And it is here that we pick up the story in Exodus. Please rise as we read Exodus 1, 1 through 14. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one, with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the people who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come. Let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us, and they'll fight against us and depart from the land or overtake the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that... They were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to hard labor, to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed upon them. Lord, thank you for this story. Thank you that this is more than than fiction or a tale that we tell ourselves. But thank you, this is a story of your activity in history, your activity in the people that have come before us, the men and women who have suffered before we were ever on this planet, and the men and women who, through Jesus, we have become a part of. Lord, I pray you would reveal to us what it means to be part of your story, and that you would grant each one here great hope that you are the God of the story. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in our English Bibles, uh, if you were to turn to the first page of Exodus, it says, Exodus on top, Uh, which makes a lot of sense because the, the, you know, the main part of this plot line is that God is going to rescue his people. Sorry, I didn't hope I didn't give it away for you. Uh, but, you know, God is, this is a great story of deliverance, right? This is the story of the people of Israel. This is the defining, um, the defining story. So we call it Exodus in English, but in the Hebrew Bible, it actually has a different title. Uh, it's literally the first two words of the sentence, Ya'elech uh, Shmot, Ya'elech Shmot, which means these are the names. I know it's not very creative, right? Because if you look at your Bible right now and you see the first few words of Exodus 1-1, it literally says, these are the names. These are the names of, right? Well, that is the title in Hebrew, which may seem like a small detail, but new books don't start in any language with the word and, right? And goes between two things, what has come before and what has come after, The point is that the book you and I call Exodus is part of the same story that came before it. We might even think of Exodus not as a completely new book, but maybe it's a new volume in the same story or even a new uh, chapter in the story of the people of God. At the end of Genesis, Joseph held a great position of honor in Egypt, and this enabled his family, who was struggling with famine in the land of Canaan, to to come south to the Nile Delta in the area of Goshen, which is northwest Egypt. Joseph's family were sheep herders in Canaan, uh, and sheep herding wasn't a very popular thing in Egypt, so what happened was, when they all came south... Joseph having the position of power he did convinced the Pharaoh to let his family be the royal sheep herders. So they took care of the flocks of Pharaoh in the time of Joseph and shortly after. Now as shepherds, Joseph's family members and his descendants were able to have a certain amount of autonomy. Shepherds are nomadic people. They go where the, where the grass is good. They travel around so their animals don't trample all the grass in one spot. And being semi-nomadic and having that a little bit of independence also gave them freedom to keep their family customs and their religious customs uh, without fully assimilating into Egypt. And even after Joseph died, we learned that the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, becoming exceedingly great or numerous, so that the land literally swarmed with them. Now, this isn't to say that the Israelites at this time outnumbered the Egyptians. Uh, This is clearly poetic language to describe God's faithfulness to them. This description of Israelites being fruitful and multiplying, does that ring a bell? It's verbatim from Genesis 1, 28. God declares his whole purpose for creation for human beings is to be fruitful and to multiply. And then again in Genesis 9, after the flood, when, when Noah comes out of the ark, God makes a covenant with Noah and tells him the same thing. Go, be fruitful and multiply. So what we're seeing here in Exodus 1, verse 7, is that from the beginning of the story, God is with these people. He's fulfilling his promises to them and to their descendants. I'm sorry, to their ancestors. He's fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Noah, and all these people. He's fulfilling it in Exodus 1. They are being fruitful. They are multiplying to the point where the Egyptians are taking notice, and they're worried. The same God who created life And made the promises of life in Genesis as the same God over these people in Exodus. Even though what's about to happen might make them doubt that fact. Now enter a new king. A king who conveniently forgot about Joseph. Now what on earth does that mean? How does a king forget about a guy like Joseph? And one of the things I have to tell you is that Egyptians were known for their literacy. They had some of the... uh, The most famous works of literature in that time period. And one of the things that was very important to Egyptians was teaching history. So if you're a prince, like this king was before he was a king, you're in school. You're learning the history of your people. In fact, Egyptians, and most people in the world actually, don't feel like they can be fully human unless they know their story, unless they understand their history and the story of their people. So how is it that this king does not know the history of Egypt? how is it that he has not heard of Joseph? To understand what's going on, humor me a little bit for a history lesson. Think back to Joseph. How is it that this Hebrew slave entered into a position of such power in Egypt? Well, here's a little interesting tidbit. During the 13th dynasty in Egypt, something happened that had never happened in Egypt in its first 1,100 years as an empire, as a dynasty. That thing that happened that was so unique is that a foreigner, a non-Egyptian, became king. Beginning around the year 1755 B.C., a group of people from the Near East, known in general as the Hyksos, which simply means people from the hill country, which is Canaan, it was a mixed group of people, uh, some Semitic, some Hebrew, some what we would call Asiatics, which is ancient Near Eastern people. They came down and began to do trading with Egypt, and then they began to settle because it's really nice to live around a river that, you know, never dries up, and then eventually... They made a power grab and took the throne of Egypt. Now, you have to understand, this was not Egypt's best time in their history. There was a period of 125 years where Egypt had 50 different kings. You could call that an unstable political situation. And in this unstable political situation, these Hyksos people were able to gain power in Egypt. And it is believed that somewhere during this Hyksos rule, Joseph was elevated to his position. In fact, these Hyksos people, what they would do is they would systematically exclude Egyptians from the royal court. So here's Joseph, a wise man, given wisdom by God, able to interpret these dreams, and he's got a plan on how to get them out of famine. And he's not a threat because he's not Egyptian. Yes, let's elevate him to the role of Vizier. Now, who knows how long the Israelites prospered, even after Joseph's death. But by uh, by the time of our story, they began to be fruitful and multiply. They were blessed by God, and make no mistake about it, these people were a blessing to their community. But history tells us that After 1630, native Egyptian kings began resisting the Hyksos rule, and in 1539 BC, a king, or a pharaoh as we call them generically, named Amhos I defeated and expelled the Hyksos rulers. After Amhos uh, took power, there was an extreme fear of outsiders, a xenophobia which turned into discrimination and racism against anyone who was non-native Egyptian. There was anxiety that some of these ethnic groups within Egypt would rise up again, just like the Hyksos had, and many of them did. It is this attitude towards outsiders and immigrants that caused the change in attitude towards Joseph's people living in Egypt in Egypt so the king didn't forget about Joseph he was all too familiar with Joseph and his people what he forgot was any arrangements that were made with Joseph and his people and in a move that tends to repeat itself throughout history when a group is threatened by another this king and his court turned to propaganda and fear-mongering against the Israelites the Pharaoh began to build fear in people's minds, saying that the Israelites have become far too numerous. Does that ring a bell? I've lived in California for six years, and every year it was this Hispanic population is becoming far too numerous. By the year 20, whatever, they're going to outnumber us as if Oh no! Then what? We're going to like lose our state or something. I mean, there's this, there's this fear, and it's common in, in most cultures that uh, you know it's just this fear of being taken over. In fact, in our own country, you cannot be president right unless you're an American citizen. This is, uh, I guess, it kind of makes sense to some degree, but it's it's really a fear-based thing that somehow we're going to lose our country, and this is what's going on at this time. Pharaoh is creating this propaganda against the Israelites, saying, "I know what's going to happen during the next uprising." These people are going to join themselves with other minority groups, and they will take over the throne again. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they join themselves to those who hate us and and go up from us. Literally, what this means is it's a term that they would use in the common tongue to describe the Nile when it would flood. So it's not so much that Pharaoh is worried that the Israelites are going to leave, I mean, he probably wished they would, it's that they would rise up and flood over the land, that they would literally uh, uh, take over power. So he took their positions as royal shepherds, far too much autonomy for a group that are suspects, right? He doesn't want them talking out on their little gallivants for months at a time. He takes away their autonomy, their role as royal shepherds, and instead makes them slaves of the state. He turns them into brickmakers. Now, first of all, making bricks was a humiliating task. We can gain a little glimpse of what people thought about brickmakers from this quirky ancient Egyptian uh, literary piece called A Satire on the Trades. So here's a little piece from it. This author writes, he's dirtier than pigs from treading under his mud. His clothes are stiff with clay. His leather belt is going to ruin. Entering into the wind, he's miserable. He's miserable. His sides ache since he must be outside in a treacherous wind. His arms are destroyed with technical work. What he eats is the bread of his fingers and he washes himself only once a season. He's simply wretched through and through. Not only was brick making humiliating, it was insanely difficult on the body. Many died under the stress of this, of this profession where you don't have paid time off and sick leave. You just You have to come to work, no matter how you feel, no matter if you have an injury or something's going on in your life. And many suffered death under this heavy task. And really, that's probably Pharaoh's plan. Population control. And while I'm at it, I might as well have these people construct for me storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now, these storage cities, they sound nice, like grain silos, right? In reality, they're they're storage cities for grain, but also armaments so what pharaoh is having the israelites do is create outposts think about uh, our own um, in the old days in the 1800s 1700s we would have all these forts that we we now go visit and we think they're kind of cool to climb around on but all of these forts were outposts because they're so far away in an age when you only had uh you know it might take you all day to travel 25 to, to 30 miles if if you're Armies are getting attacked. You need to have a garrison. You need to have an outpost where you could sustain and hold them off until the reinforcements could come. So Pitham and Ramses are these northern outposts where they have grain and they have armaments and blacksmiths and a small cohort of soldiers. Of course, the irony of this whole thing is that the harder Pharaoh oppressed the people of Israel, the more they multiplied. It was almost as if an unseen force was on their side. Of course, it wasn't a force at all. It was the living God. And by placing himself in the way of the people of Israel who were, by being fruitful and multiplying, who were fulfilling the goal of creation, Pharaoh is not placing himself against Israel. He was placing himself against God. And that's a place you don't want to be. Now, for the people of God who would read this book, Exodus, maybe in the captivity of Babylon, maybe during the first century when Rome was oppressing them, this story would be incredibly encouraging. The God who delivered in in Egypt is the same God who would deliver us from Babylon, who is the same God who would deliver us from Rome. The story would remind them like an Ebenezer But what does it really have to do with you and I if we don't have Jewish heritage? That's just the thing. This story is our story because it's the story of Jesus. For example, Acts chapter 7. Stephen begins explaining the gospel of Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders. And unlike some contemporary evangelicals, Stephen did not explain the gospel starting with turn or burn. In fact, I'm not sure hell was in his message in that that sermon. He did not start explaining the gospel of Jesus by telling them how they could be successful in life or how they could get rid of all their guilt. He did not tell them about the gospel of Jesus by offering them forgiveness firsthand and the promise of eternal life. He didn't start there. Stephen explained the gospel of Jesus by starting with the gospel of God, the story of God in the people of Israel. He begins with Abraham and God's promise to him, his promise to bless those nations who bless Abraham, and, those, and the promise to curse those nations who curse him. And then he quotes Genesis 15, which Joe read earlier, where God says he's going to multiply the people, but that they would be in captivity for around 400 years, which, duh, 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 Exodus, right? He then tells the story of Joseph in Egypt, and then he quotes this passage from tonight's passage, Exodus 1.8. It's in Acts 7. You can look it up. He quotes, there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. He recounts the story of Moses and the Exodus, a story that Stephen's audience would have known by heart. Stephen goes on to talk about David and Solomon and the prophets. He's telling them the story of God because it's the story of God that shaped them. They would resonate with it. They would be in agreement with him. And then he says that Jesus is the one that all the stories and all the prophets and all the prophecies are pointing to. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story. He's the blessing to the world. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And through faith in Jesus, says the writer to the letter to the Hebrews, we and all people become part of the story. Let me say it again. Through our faith in Jesus, you and I and whoever has faith in Jesus becomes part of this story, or rather this story becomes our story. The Exodus, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of it. The God who delivered the Israelites is the God who continues to deliver through Jesus. Now, if we can wrap our minds about that, even partially, if we can wrap our minds around the fact that we have been rescued by Jesus, we've been rescued by God in the Exodus because that has become our story, then you and I ought to begin, like Paul says in in Colossians, among other places, to put on... A heart of compassion. And I think specifically for our text tonight, a heart of compassion for maybe the current day immigrant, the current day foreigner in our world who do the least desirable jobs among us and who are forced to the outskirts of society, who often bear the brunt of our xenophobia, our fear of being outnumbered by this group or that people. If we're afraid, by the way, to reach out to others who are different than us, we will be very uncomfortable in the kingdom of heaven. So who are the outsiders in our circle? How can you and I be the blessing of God to them? You know, in, in this realm of, uh, of thinking, I, I thought of two names. There could have been so many uh, among you, but I thought of Ann Moore immediately, who for much of her career as a teacher ministered, really, to people whose first language is not English. And uh, who reached out to that group of people, helping them to, uh, to be able to learn and to get an education. And she did so many other things, reaching out to families and going above and beyond. And I think of Charlotte Plogg who um, many of her students uh, are are people that come from migrant working families. You know, Charlotte, every Friday morning before school, cooks a breakfast at school for her students. Uh, The money comes out of her own pocket. And it's a way of just expressing her care and her concern, her compassion. And these students have learned to trust her and to see her as an agent of blessing, If the Exodus story is our story, how might we think differently about issues of race and borders and immigration? You know, when I say that, I don't have like some secret thing I hope that you start agreeing with me on. I'm confused. It's a complex issue. So when I say that statement, this is stuff that's been resonating in my heart preparing this sermon. But just because I don't fully understand it and just because I do feel like this issue is bigger than just me doesn't mean we can run away from it. And so, you know, a couple options. One would be pray about it. Check your heart. Where are you at with issues of race and immigration and issues of our borders? Why are you where you're at? And maybe for some guidance, you know, there's a great paper that that came out Uh, in the evangelical covenant church Uh, you can look at the ecc website and it's on it's it's a paper on immigration reform joe and katie and i uh, heard it discussed at the annual meeting it's not perfect but it gives us a a way to start framing the issue uh, and it's full of bible it's full of scripture and how to think about this very complex issue so begin with prayer Begin with conversations with people who are different than you, that have different stories than you, and maybe seek some guidance from a paper like the one I just mentioned uh, on the website. Now, all of this is wonderful and challenging and life-changing, but the truth is, the gospel is more than inviting us into the story of God. It's more than saying, hey, guess what? Now all the Old Testament is your history too. Yay! Like, what does that mean for me right now? Right? The good news is, That our story, past, present, future, is really His story. We're part of the story of God's creation, God's revelation, God's grace, God's rescue, God's rule, God's love, God's deliverance in Jesus. God is our Father. And if this is the story we're living, if we're living in His story, then our story is full of hope. Jesus made us. Jesus sustains us. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose and defeated our greatest enemy, death itself. And through faith in Jesus, our story is sure to end with eternal life. Eternal story of blessing and abundance in the kingdom of God. But I feel like in looking at the way you've revealed yourself to us, it must say something about what our needs are. I feel like if story wasn't important, if roots and history weren't important, it wouldn't matter to you. They wouldn't, it wouldn't be such a part of how you communicate through through the scriptures, how you communicated, Lord, in your actions, doing things Like Moses, only better. Doing things like David, only better. You you, you use story to communicate yourself and to express yourself. Lord, because this is so, because you became incarnate and dwelt among us, because that matters, help it to matter to us. I pray for grace this week as my brothers and sisters and I go out, often having a love, hate, or indifferent relationship with our Bibles. Sometimes the words are familiar. Sometimes they just don't do anything for us. I pray for grace, Lord, that you would speak to us in a new way. Meet with us, Lord, as we crack open the Scriptures The telling of your story help us to see that we are a part of this story help us to see how we fit in help us to appreciate what you've done help us to have hope that because you've done amazing things in the past for the people of god that you are willing and able to do amazing things in this people of god and in our lives lord Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to look at at Abraham and all his flaws and yet you called him a man of faith. Lord, you make us men and women of faith, boys and girls of faith in Jesus. Lord, thank you for being the point of all of the stories and the prophecies. Thank you for sacking sacrificing yourself on our behalf. Help us, Lord, if, we're, if we become numb to that amazing reality. Help us to respond in thanksgiving and praise and adoration and obedience. Amen.